For more than 350 years, the cultures of Africa, Europe and the East have mingled in Cape Town. Get away to the South African Windlands, a city rich in colorful history and culture vibrant. In these 400 years of history, winemaking in South Africa has been a zigzag course, pulled, by, pulled one way by considerable promise and pushed the other by ways of incompetence self-interest and brutally opaque democracy. As my guest today notes, there's an entire story of winemaking and wine growing to be told. His aims to provide the context information for the appreciating South African wine. In this conversation, we cover the post-1994 movement, why Shining Blanc is so popular in South Africa, what is the Cape Doctor, and why is it so vital for South Africa and more. Before we start the show, remember to subscribe now, on with the show. Hi, I'm Matthias Carpazza, and this is the Looking Into Wine podcast. Wine and winemaking can be complex, but this podcast has a simple mission. We want to give you the skills and tools to harness your passion about wine. Through this series, we will shine a spotlight on some of the different regions, process, and concepts that shape the fascinating world of wine. I hope you enjoy the show and your own journey. Looking into Welcome wine. to the Looking Into Wine podcast. I'm Matthias Carpazza, your host. Today with me is the author of The Wines of South Africa. He won in 2020 the Louis Roder Wine Writer Award for International Future Writer of the Year. He writes for a number of trade and consumer magazines, including The World of Fine Wine, Sommelier Journal, and The Wine Enthusiast. He's also a fellow podcaster with his own podcast called Wines of South Africa. I welcome to the show, Jim Clark. Uh, it's a pleasure. I, Thank you. I really like the wines of South Africa and I was very excited to, to create something to speak about the wines of South Africa. It's a very exciting country and uh, I can see a lot of future, great future with it. Um, what, what was your inspiration to write the book? Uh, what was the connection with South Africa? Well, um... I, well, I came to New York about uh, a little over 20 years ago now and got involved with, uh, well, worked in restaurants, as, as one does, um, and was lucky enough to learn about wine. And South Africa came up pretty early when I started getting serious about wine, and it became a bit of a specialty of mine, um, in part just from happening to, meet, happening to meet the right people, but also just seeing that other people weren't paying attention to what I thought was a really exciting and dynamic area. And... Um, I started doing some wine writing in 2004 and kind of specialized in South Africa in that aspect while I was working as a sommelier in different restaurants uh, to supplement that. And um, what, what I found was it, it's a really exciting area. For example, I had a mentor who said, stay a buyer, stay in that position where you're you know, buying wines for a restaurant. You get to taste wines from all around the world. You're never going to get bored. Well, eventually you want to get out of the restaurant side and maybe you work for a distributor and this sort of thing. And that narrows what wines you get to work with. Well, now I mostly work with South African wines, but I'm certainly not getting bored. Um, there's just so much going on. I don't like to pick on other regions, but I, I used to joke with a friend of mine who worked for Wines of New Zealand or the New Zealand wine growers. And you must get tired of Sauvignon Blanc at some point, you know, uh, whereas with South Africa, yes, Shenan is a leading variety, but we also but it's only 18 percent of the vineyards. So you have Cabernet, you have. Interesting things like Sinso having a revival, all sorts of different things. So it really. Yeah, keeps me I mean, I can see in the South Africa there is this like 
movement and it is like revival and uh, is a very modern wine industry with their seal and their, their producing and then there's a lot of interest there and there was a lot of emphasis on your book on regards like the the seals and the association they're, they're creating in south africa why they've been created and what are they just uh, to the key ones well i think um coming out of the end of apartheid so uh, say 1990 nelson mandela's released uh, 1991 is when most european and uh, well in the us uh, countries dropped their embargoes against south african products and the wine industry in south africa went through a huge period of um of deregulation but there was a real need for structures that kept the industry to a high standard and uh, really especially tried to address some issues of the past so for example the the sustainability seal was the industry was suddenly expanding quite a bit because suddenly they could export to the world and this sort of thing but at the same time there was a real need to make sure that the local environment was protected so as early as well, you, you have 1994 we would kind of say is the birth of the modern industry that's the year of the first free democratic elections in south africa so within 4 years the industry was putting together what became the sustainability seal that you're referring to on on the capsules and they've stayed on top of that and tightened up the regulations each year and adjusted to what the needs of the environment are for example you may have heard that from 2015 to 2018 there was a serious drought in south africa well this caused the sustainability seal to look at what the regulations were in terms of water use and water recycling and things like that and just tighten those up to keep the sustainability seal fresh and relevant to what the what the environment demanded. So I think a lot of these great programs really come out as a reaction to what happened in the 1990s with this really birth of a, a brand new country and the need to set standards that really not just met international standards but kind of exceeded it because South Africa had this terrible history that it needed to overcome. So they really felt that they needed to push things to maintain yeah, no, very definitely. high standards. You can see, I mean, these, it's, uh, it's, quite, it's quite widespread as well. And it's very well taken on. It is uh, uh, the seal of uh, sustainability. You can see it in a lot of bottles and, and definitely it's almost a, it has become a leader for, for this in South Africa and it's definitely put the mark for, for South Africa. I can see that. And um, when you're talking about earlier about Shannon Blanc and it was as you said it's about 80% 18% of the varieties and for me it's an exciting great variety and how did it get to, to be so prominent in mm-hmm. south africa because what's the history of shanin uh, well it does seem to be one of the very first grapes to have come to south africa back in the uh, 17th century so it may have been one of the very first varieties that arrived in 1655 we're not entirely sure and of course for much of its history it was in south africa it was called steen and we didn't know that it was that it was chenin blanc it was only in the 1960s that um, a professor in south africa made that identification its popularity though it had been around for a long time it only really became popular starting partially in the 1950s but especially the 1960s and 1970s and this goes to what became the very popular style of wine in South Africa which you saw in in Germany we saw it in California which is these sort of off dry fruity white wines and um the it's a combination of two things one getting the right grapes of course but also the ability to sterile filtrate your wine so you could leave a little bit of sugar in the wine and not worry about it refermenting and then at the same time cool temperature fermentation which helps create those fruity aromas. So a lot of what South African wine industry was doing back in the 60s and 70s 
was these styles of wine, which Shannon was very well suited to. So during the 60s and 70s, Shannon rose to be about one third of the plantings in South Africa. If in 19, I think it was uh, 68, it became the most planted variety on its way up. And Cinso, which had been the most planted variety, kind of passed it on the way down. Doesn't say that that much. Here we're talking about, we're planting a lot of Shannon, but we're not talking about making a lot of premium wine. There was a shift starting toward premium wine with some of the estates in the 60s, or I should say back to premium wine in the 1960s. But really, that's a, that accelerates with the end of apartheid. So in 1990, as you said, apartheid starts to become dismantled. The um, industry was deregulated, and a lot of people said, well, Shannon is this workhorse grape. It's not a serious grape. Let's rip it out. So a lot of the vineyards did come out of the ground back then. But there were certain people who said, well, wait, this, wine, this grape has done so well here. Let's give it a chance. Uh, Ken Forrester is a great example. He, he bought uh, a property in 1991-92 in Stellenbosch, having been a restaurateur before. And he had these old vine Shannons. He said, well, I'm not going to rip these out until I see what they can do. And he became a real advocate for saying, no, Shannon doesn't have to be a, um, a, a high-yielding grape. If you grow it in the right places and you make quality wine from it, you can make really uh, world-class wines. And he demonstrated that. And now we see so many of the younger producers looking back and saying, wait, when we made all these changes in the 1990s, we said, oh, Shannon's no good since so, had the same problem. And now we see younger winemakers going back and say, well, actually, we threw out the baby with the bathwater. Some of these grapes make very, very high-class, wonderful wines. You just have to handle them properly, grow them in the right places, and not try yeah, to no, get, like, you know, I mean, that's a, also thousands of tons per say, I mean, I can see it since so younger producers, especially some region like Svartland, and there is becoming this hub for modern or like Sinso and... Uh, and um, Chenin Blanc, which is very exciting and such a diverse country. And I really like about that, about uh, South Africa, it's such a diverse style you can produce. And But one one thing I never quite understood it was uh, what is the, the escape doctor? It, uh, it, it is really so important. And I think it's it's key for explaining a lot of different things that make the Western Cape of South Africa a great place for wine growing. When we think of most of Af Africa, of course, we think of hot, dry climates. We think of lions and the savanna and things. Um, what happens is there is a high pressure system, to get kind of technical for a moment, um, that sits over the South Atlantic. And when summer comes to the southern hemisphere, summer comes to the southern hemisphere, that moves and it kind of sets up right off the southern tip of Africa. So you have this one spot where there's all this pressure bearing down of, of air. The water around it that it's resting on is very cold. It's a current that's coming from Antarctica, and um, it, there's a big upwelling there. This is when water comes from very deep in the you know, 200, 300 meters underwater, comes up to the surface. So very cold water. When you see uh, pictures of surfers in Cape Town, doesn't matter if it's summer or winter, they're always wearing wetsuits because the water is always cold. So during the day, the air over the water stays cold because the water is cold, but the air over the land heats up faster. So it heats up and it rises. And when it rises, it creates an escape route for that high pressure system. So the high pressure systems, all this air looking for a place to go. The hot air rises over the land. So this wind just shoots across from the southeast, going across really all the major wine growing areas of South Africa and cooling them off. So this has a lot of great advantages. Like I said, obviously it cools things off. So you're getting a lot of sunshine, but not necessarily as much heat as you think. So that moderates the, the growing temperatures. 
it also um, plays a large part in disease prevention. And this is the, the Cape Doctor idea, both for people and for plants. It's blowing all the, the bad air out to sea. In a more technical term for the grapes, what it means is that the, the spores and the things for th that would settle on the grapes and start causing rot never get a chance to sit still enough to stay on the grapes. They get blown away because the winds are very severe. Um, you can exceed four kilometers per second wind. It, it's the most, okay. really the most windy well, place I've ever seen grapevines. Extraordinary uh, answering to the question. It was so technical. I really enjoyed Thank you. Um, so, sure. I mean, one of the things in, in your book uh, I, I really enjoyed, it was uh, like um, the, the the mapping and everything, how detail and everything. But obviously in half an hour conversation, we can't go through all of them. And I, I think it would be mm -hmm. more interesting to cover more of the history or some of the movement we have in here. And one of the things we you were talking earlier, like the early 90s, it was this uh, movement of moving from like cooperative base from the dismantle of the big uh, KWV. How... How that hindered sort of the industry and what what has created after when when did the shift start? Um, I think the, the the shift. I mean, the earliest roots of the shift, I would say, will go back to the 1960s. You have um, three wineries in Stellenbosch, uh, Delheim, Simonsig, and Speer that all said we're not going to do the co-op system anymore. And it was a really brave thing thing to do back then because. What happened was the co-ops, you know, sold then to merchants who created brands. Um, but if you were going to say, my farm, we're going to make some of the wine and sell it ourselves. Well, then these people who are making the brand said, well, now I'm competing with you in the marketplace. I don't, I'm not going to buy your grapes. So you had to really do all or nothing. So, so those three led the way. You had Baxberg up in Parle doing the same. So that's the early stages of it. Um, that starts to accelerate when you get into the 1980s. I think a lot of producers, a lot of forward-thinking people were saying, look, apartheid is finally going to end. We're going to rejoin the society of the, of the world. There's a place for creating premium wines rather than trying to work within the South African market. So that spurred things. But really, in the 1990s, um, once South Africa joined the world market, there was a realization that the very heavily regulated top-down system that KWV operated where, where this one organization was telling people how much they got paid for their grapes, uh, what grapes they could grow, where they could grow them, didn't make sense in a free market world economy. So from 1992 to 1997, KWV deregulates. They give up a lot of their regulatory powers, which then, um, and, the, and a lot of the um, uh, assets that came with them. And that led to creation of different government agencies, actually including the uh, wines of South Africa, who I work for, um, but also um, Vinpro, which is our kind of industry lobbying um, company, and they, they're training education programs within South Africa, all that sort of thing. And then the Wine and Spirits Board, this does all the creating the, the certificates, uh, the certifications that we talked about. So huge deregulation. The other thing is the domestic market in South Africa had largely been white wine focused. Um, we talked about that off dry white wine we were talking about before. So in 1990, 80% of South Africa's vineyards were planted to white grapes. And the market demand in the world was for red grapes at the time. So there was a huge shift trying to find the right balance on what grapes go where within South Africa. So these days, um, South Africa is about 55% white grapes and 45 red. And that seems to be stable, and that seems to reflect the different growing areas, and things are now planted in the right places. Um, but 
that was a huge shift for the industry. So we had a lot of young vines as people were replanting, a lot of investment. You also had a lot of winemakers who were not that familiar with making red wine. So there was a learning period where they really learned how to make red wine through, the, I think you can say through the 90s. And that, that was a really big transitional period. And I, I think those were the, the big challenges they faced was that uh, real big changes in the vineyard and then adapting to this deregulation. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there must have been almost like new things for them. And they must have been like so close and then they have to discover almost everything from from scratch or all the new modern techniques and everything. That was definitely one of the takeaways I took from the book as well. And um so obviously when you're talking about red wine grape red grapes, one one cannot mention Pinotage, which is the the South African wine grape. But it's, it's sort of it's interesting because I was reading that the Pinotage is finally coming around and is getting to a place where he's happy to and finding the good a good balance to make a great Pinotage. And why what was the story with Pinotage? Why they had such a bad rap? <laughs> well, I mean to well, this is a grape that's coming up on being a hundred years old. It was developed as a cross in, in 1925. So, and during the first part of that period, remember, we have a, we have a, a culture where red wine is um, kind of secondary. It takes a long time to learn how to make a grape, how, how to handle it in the, in the winery. Um, when we think of all the grapes that are classics, I mean, Italy, uh, Sangiovese, it's been hundreds, if not a thousand, over a thousand years of experience, similarly with Cabernet or Pinot Noir and Burgundy and things like that. So when you work with one of those grapes, you have a good blueprint of where to start. But Pinotage, we don't have that. We see the same thing actually here in the United States with a lot of the hybrids. Um, hybrid grapes don't have a great reputation. They say, oh, these have these funny flavors, they say. But we're seeing more and more that it's a matter of winemaking. Yes, if you try to make your um, Vida Blanc as if it's Sauvignon Blanc, you're going to get some funny flavors. But there's other ways to treat it in the winery. So similarly with Pinotage. And Pinotage was promoted very heavily in that, in the night again, in the 1990s. And if you think why, so 1991, uh, Byers Truder, the winemaker at Kanunkop, which is an, a Pinotage specialist for, for decades, won the best winemaker in the world award in the International Wine and Spirits Competition. And that timing is really important because that 1991, that's the year that embargoes started falling. So the world is suddenly saying you can export wines. And by the way, this wine is, this guy's making the best wine in the world from Pinotage. So you can see how people would say, oh, we need to make and sell Pinotage. It's, this is what the world is saying they like. <laughs> um, but again, you have all these winemakers who don't have as much experience with Pinotage and they don't have as much experience with red wine in general. So you really had a lot of winemaking learning going on in the 90s and early 2000s. And a lot of the wines, the Pinotages back then, were not as good as they should have been because people didn't know how to make them. Now we've gotten over that. And the winemakers who are working with Pinotage um, you know, it's still only the third most planted red grape. It's never been the big thing that people think it is. It's obviously a, a huge, important part of the South African scene. But um, the people who are making it now are serious about it. They've learned how to make it both in the vineyard and in the winery. They're, they're treating it right. They're not treating it as if it's Cabernet or Syrah. They're treating it as Pinotage. And the results show in the bottle.
Um, pinotage can do well in, in hot areas. The challenge is, is it, um, especially after veraison, it ripens very quickly. So if you're in a hot area, that chance of, the chance of missing that, that window that's balanced where you want it is much harder. So some of the more exciting pinotages coming out lately, especially if you're pursuing a, a, a fresher style of wine, are coming from some of those cool climate areas. Um, I think of uh, Baltrivera, Walker Bay, down the coast there, there's some very interesting pinotages there. That said, some of the more powerful traditional styles of pinotage, like Kanunkop or Simonsig or Lavenir, come from a stretch that's on the north side of Stellenbosch, um, stretching from the Simonsburg Mountain down into the Butlerai area. There's a, about six wineries in there that regularly show up in the top 10 in pinotage competitions. And that's a pretty warm spot, but they don't get big heat spikes. So they, 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 they know when to grow it. They also have a lot of old vine pinotage because some of the earliest plantings are in that area. So old vines, lower yields, and a more, uh, more controlled growing process where they have better, okay. a better sense of when and to pick um, and better control of One of the, one of the things about your um, black um, association, you have a, there is an association there for the, is I think a state run. Uh, uh, what, what is it like? What, uh, what was it created? So you yeah, mean for, for brands, the creation uh, of black-owned brands? or emphasis to, to make sure there is uh, a quality. Um, well, there, there's certainly something that South Africa in, in every industry has strived to fix um, is the inequities of the past. Um, the wine industry has been um, a little bit slower than some other industries, not for lack of willingness, but because of the nature of uh, the wine industry. Um, one, a lot of the farms are small family-owned farms. So they aren't big companies that you can bring in, um, you know, stock ownership in and get the people invested in uh, very easily. So that's a challenge. Early government efforts really focused on land ownership. And in most parts of the world, and certainly in South Africa, the least profitable part of the wine industry is to grow grapes and sell them to, to wine sellers, you know, to, to be made into wine. So um, in fact, it's, a, it's an issue right now where about 50% of our wine farmers are about breaking even at best. They're not making money on their, on their vineyards. So, so telling these people here, you get to have some land, it's not profitable, it's really not doing them any favors. Um, a lot of what's happened since then is the, the government has said, well, we have these money that we, you know, allows these people to get in a position to buy these properties and things like that. But the the industry has responded by adapting the government programs or working with the government to create programs that make sense. For example, there's a company called a Companies Drift, and this was formed by uh, workers who work for a few different wineries, um, Mirlust, Ken Forrester, and I'm sorry, but one other who escapes me right now. And instead of saying, okay, you've got some land, grow grapes on it. You've got, they've had some land, they invested and built a warehouse designed for the storage and logistics of wine. And a, a huge number of South African wineries now use that as a, a logistics center. And that's allowed them to use that government investment to create something that's profitable and sustainable. And now the part that is planted to vineyards, they're actually managing that and they are starting to make their own wines under the company's drift label. But by having an early business model that didn't have that capital investment needed and that knowledge of wine culture needed to get started. Yeah. And really what's the name of the association? Because I couldn't remember all that just for... 
Twitter, W, just, yes, just the for, wine industry for the for trade sake for the listeners to, to know what, where to look to find information about it. Right. Yeah. Uh, Wita. Wita, W, yes, yeah, the wine industry yeah, exactly. trade there is, uh, there is that. So what, what can, uh, how do you, how you see in the industry now then sort of COVID is, seems to be fading off? Can, is the industry getting back on its feet uh, or is anything you would suggest to help uh, there? There's any? Um, well, as far as why, there's a few reasons. So basically there was about, over the course of 18 or 20, 20 something months, about 23 weeks in total where alcohol sales were banned within South Africa. Uh, that's the, that's the most egregious and most dangerous part for the industry. But also there's been limits on um, the hospitality industry. Tourism has been reduced to almost nothing. All of these things are things that the industry thrives upon. Um, the reasons for it were a, a few. One, not necessarily with, you know, for fine wine, but for beer, for alcohol in general, let's say, there is a big problem with binge drinking in South Africa. So, um, and this tends to, you know, on a, a Saturday night in some communities, not necessarily in the Western Cape specifically, but in South Africa in general, clog, um, you know, the emergency rooms. It puts demands on the medical services. So there was a feeling like we want to cut that out so that the medical service can, can address people who have COVID. So that was the the basic thinking of of this. Yeah. There was also um, uh, some feeling that the, the alcohol industry was not a, um, uh, what do we call it here? A, well, not a, not a required service, not a necessary service. Um, it, it's actually very interesting here in the U.S. Uh, wine and liquor stores were part of the, you know, uh, required service that were allowed to stay open. But in South Africa, the thinking was different. Um, there also might be within a a part of the black community, because uh, during apartheid and, and as part of the legacy of, of apartheid, there is an issue with alcoholism. There is a slight um, teetotal aspect to some of the government policies or kind of attitudes in South Africa. So not that they were, were trying to stick it to the wine industry in particular, but they're like, it's alcohol. It's, it's not important. We should encourage people to drink less in general. It's kind of part of their attitude. I think we see that in a lot of parts of the world right now. I mean, uh, France is... Uh, was it Europe uh, just recently avoided labeling wine as a, a cancer causing agent the way they do cigarettes, you know, for example. So, yeah. And talking about South Africa in, uh, in the broader terms, I think it's a very exciting region. I, it was one of my favorite regions to explore and to buy wine from. Uh, really being fascinated by mm -hmm. it. And it creates yeah, such a, an array of styles and of wines. What are for you the sort of uh, unique? styles of wine that come from South Africa, what, what excites you and what think people should get to try? Ooh, um, well, it really depends on, you know, what, how I feel the day you ask me. I, I think, I mean, obviously I think Shannon is such a great grape for exploring. If you just want to take one grape variety and taste a lot of different styles, you know, a Stellenbosch Shannon, we have a clear, I think, picture now of what Stellenbosch Shannon looks like compared to say Swartland Shannon. And we're seeing more Shannon from different areas. And that's a grape, since it's planted almost everywhere, you can really compare the different regions through the same lens. Um, so I think that that's definitely, you know, obviously one. I'm really excited about the traditional method sparkling wines, Method Cap Classique from South Africa. Um, I, I love bubbles. 
champagne just gets more and more expensive and I, I love it, but it's in a, it's, it is a special occasion wine most of the time, whereas I can have a bottle of Cap Classique in the fridge and open it on a Tuesday and be perfectly happy with that and, and, and enjoy an excellent wine. So I think that's the, actually the, the fastest growing category of wine in South Africa. The, it's doubling every five years. So obviously other people agree with me that it's an interesting wine. Um, and then I think on the red wine side, just the interest in making not you know super extracted, powerful wines, but this interest in elegance. And you see it in, in obvious grapes like Cinso or the Grenache. We're seeing very elegant Grenaches coming out of South Africa. But even Stella Mosh Cabernet, which can still, I mean, it's Cabernet. It's, it's quite powerful, but it's not all about oak and extraction and alcohol the way um, well, red wines in South Africa, red wines in all the world were like, you know, 20 years ago. That was what made a good red wine. Now um, you can really show the fresh sides of these of these grapes. And I think that's really exciting to see. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I can see that uh, here uh, too. And uh, in London, you can start seeing these styles coming over. And it is very exciting. It really shows, they start showing more about the the shape of South Africa, the 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 terroir and where they come from is very very interesting especially with the Sinsu and Grenache I really like them and, and you can still see some like um, cult almost wine coming from South Africa which is which is very exciting and uh, hopefully will project over the years what, what wines that they, they can make and Clark it's been a pleasurable very pleasurable half an hour and I suggest to everybody to go to to get your book but also to listen to your podcast because you can you go through many detail in the different regions and different style of South Africa, which I could never do in half an hour here, but it's very exciting. And the podcast is called uh, Wines of South Africa, and the book uh, is called The Wines of South Africa. (laughs) Uh, Thank you you for this half an hour. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking with you. You have listened to the Looking Into Wine podcast with Jim Clark, author of the book, The Wines of South Africa. If you enjoyed the podcast and you find it invaluable, remember to subscribe and to tell your friends. You can find Looking Into Wine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever you listen to your podcasts from. Audio produced by Samuele DiNardo. Audio and editing by Tommaso Ascoli. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.